Well, hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Fearless Questions podcast, where we follow our questions to freedom. I'm your host, Jeff Blackburn, and today we have a first on the show, which is uh, I, actually a second of sort, I guess, because we have our first return guest, who I think on a really, really windy day is spitting distance from the Pacific Ocean. Wayne Jacobson. Wayne, how are you doing today? It'd have to be a very windy day. Hi, Jeff. It's great yeah. to be back with you. <laughs> yeah, good to have you. Well, like a magic carpet ride kind of spit. <laughs> yeah. It's still take a little distance. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. Hey, first, I joke about your proximity to the ocean, but in all seriousness, how has the um, surrounding areas been doing since the wildfires there in California happened recently? Yeah, we've had the wildflowers, which are devastating, and the mudslides, which are devastating. Now we're back into the drought. We haven't had hardly any rain in the last month or so. So it's just one calamity after another out here. So, so when people, you know, are jealous of your weather, you're saying it's there's plenty of problems that come with it too. Yeah, I mean, we get the sunny days every day, and it's nice and warm. But uh, boy, we're soon have no water. We'll be like Cape Town. We'll have to give people six gallons a day or something. All right. Well, maybe we can start. You know, what you need to do is house swapping with people in the Midwest. You come out here during the winter, you know, just to yeah. get your experience of, yeah, if you want. Yeah. Well, look, uh, Wayne, I'm I'm glad to hear you guys are doing okay first. But um, I'm also glad to have you back on the show. You've, uh, for folks that maybe didn't hear the first time you were on or don't aren't familiar with you, you've written a bunch of books. You've got a great podcast with you um, and Brad Cummings called The God Journey, which is uh, thegodjourney.com. Is that right? Yep. Okay. And people can check out, I think, a lot of your work at Lifestream.org. Um, but today I wanted to try and pick your brain a little about your most recent book that just came out uh, called Beyond Sundays, where you talk about millions of Americans operating outside of the classic American church, probably ticking off pastors from coast to coast and beyond. Um, <laughs> does that sound about right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe publicly, but the conversations we have with a lot of them personally is they, they share many of the same concerns and they just struggle with, you know, what do we do if all that's true and how do we live if we don't make our money doing this? And so it, it's not as easy that everybody hates it. There's certain groups that do for sure, but mm -hmm. I think there are others that are struggling with the same realities as I did when I was a pastor. So Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, first of all, Wayne, one of the really unique things about this book out of the gate to me was kind of your endorsement pages at the beginning, because most people usually are like name dropping every big wig they can think of to help sales. And your endorsements are all over the place from like Harvey, the farmer to someone, the mosquito <laughs> hunter. And what is that all about? Oh, I, I just asked people if they wanted to uh, off my, I think Facebook page or blog or something. If you, if you've got a reason why you would tell somebody to read a Wayne Jacobson book, why would that be? So I wasn't even specific to be on Sundays. It was just, why pick up a Wayne Jacobson book and just had a lot of people from a lot of different areas in life uh, offer their I ideas. And to me, that's a better set of endorsements than getting all the famous people who, you know, scratch each other's back by endorsing each other's books. Yeah. So I'm yeah. contrarian enough to go outside the box on that too. Well, it was fun and it does kind of have a sense of uh, a little bit more of a sense of authenticity with it too. It's just, I just thought that was pretty unique. Cause like I said, you're usually a, um, and you know, plenty of guys that could, guys and gals that could be doing that for you but I, I thought that was a nice touch but um we'll talk and, to you. and the last book with finding church we did do that so we did have people who were more known uh yeah. do endorsements for that so i'm not, I'm not beyond that but uh i thought it'd be <laughs> fun to do something different this time around you're not above it um for sure well talk to me about what pushed you to work on beyond sundays because after writing finding church because it feels like you know was it already in the works or did this just sort of happen after that 
No, it happened after it, really. I, I had some other something else I wanted to do. But uh, the reason I did this, a, a new book came out about three years ago called Church Refugees by Josh Packard and Ashley Hope. And it's a book about uh, the statistics about how many people well, – it wasn't statistics so much as – qualitative research, why people were leaving the Sunday morning thing, how well they were doing in their faith beyond that. And then subsequently, they did quantitative, which is how many people are out, how many people are still going. And I just thought that conversation needed something more. I wanted to add to that conversation. So I started a series of blogs that then became Beyond Sundays. I thought we'd put them together in a book form because people were waiting for that. But no, I wouldn't have gone back to church so quick after finding church. I think it's a different book. I think this is more of a guide as to how do we talk about this, given how deeply uh, divided we are between those who go on Sunday morning and feel like it's essential, mm -hmm. and those who've left Sunday morning, and some of them feel like it's the harlot of Babylon. So they'll, they'll talk back in very <laughs> negative terms. And I think that flies in the face of Jesus' prayer for our unity and oneness. And so this was an appeal for a better conversation, I think. The Harlot of Babylon is a, a name I have not heard thrown around often. So Really? Uh, no, I don't I don't run with people who use the word harlot. <laughs> well, yeah, well, Re Revelation 19 talks about it. And I've seen so many articles from people that have kind of left more institutional Christianity. They make that the enemy. Yeah. And somehow, you know, we who are outside are better than you who are inside. And, you know, I meet people who are inside traditional churches that are deeply passionate for Jesus and demonstrating his life in the way they live. And I meet people outside who do that, too. And I meet people inside who are, you know, kind of doing their own thing and, and not really following Jesus well. And I meet people outside who aren't following Jesus well. And so mm. my, the point is, it doesn't matter where your rear end is on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. What matters is where your heart is, is it's is it in the Father, in the Son, in the Spirit, mm. being shaped and changed by Him? If so, it doesn't matter if you go or if you don't go. Mm. It matters that we're following Him. Well, that's helpful. And um, just sort of at the outset here, it would be good for, to you know remind people this is um, – well, let me say it this way. Some of those statistics that you were um, referencing with that research done a few years ago, maybe you should lay that out for us because that sort of sets the the – the framework here for the conversation in terms of the millions of people that have left church that as we know it and sort of there's kind of certain number of them have left faith altogether and a certain number have left the church so maybe if you could just set that up for us a little bit so we understand where we're at here yeah and these are from josh packard's group dechurched i think dot org is their, their website but uh they did the qualitative research and then they did the quantitative so how many people and what they came up with is 30 65 million people have left traditional Sunday morning gatherings in the last 20, 25 years. They used to go, they no longer go. And there's not a time frame on that so much. And uh, out of those, 34 million left the faith when they left the church. So that's over half. Mm -hmm. And I and, and I, pushed, I pressed him on that number, actually, because I, I, it doesn't sound right to me. Mm -hmm. And, and what, what the actual research asked was, do you self-identify as Christian? Now, I know lots of people who've left the Sunday morning thing and they wouldn't use the term Christian anymore because they associated with that, but they would use Jesus follower, and they would be very passionate Jesus followers. So I'm not sure that number's right, but uh, uh, the way they did it, they got 34 million who've left and left the faith, and 31 million who've left and continue in a passionate walk with Jesus and looking for expressions of community they are a little bit different than the institutional variety, hmm. which leaves, uh, as th there's, what their study shows, 31 million who have left still following Jesus— 
And there's 31 million people who still attend regularly who are following Jesus. So we've got half half the people outside of it, half the people inside of it, and it would make more sense if we got along than if we turned on each other. Yeah, I actually I was looking at those numbers too, and I thought that's actually a staggering uh, awareness thing to come to an awareness of is that there are just as many people basically that are people of faith outside of the um, that local institutional church that we're kind of accustomed to as there are in it. I mean, inside and outside, whichever way I said that, that that's really fascinating to me. I mean, I would have assumed for, for most of my life that the vast majority of um, Christians or people of faith, you know, that call themselves Christians would be in that local churches as we've known it. Um, you know, yeah, 30 years ago, you would have been right. But uh, okay. that dynamic has changed significantly. Okay. And those numbers were far higher than they thought they would be, too. They, they'd projected a much lower. And I would have, too. I wouldn't have guessed it'd be that high. Well, no, I no. Um, how how's your work been received? I know you mentioned um, that uh, you know that church refugees book when it came out. Uh, I've heard you say that a couple of years ago it wasn't even carried by some bookstores because it was considered, you know, sort of detrimental to the church somehow. But how I know Beyond Sundays is just coming out. But how has your work in general been received by by the traditional churches? Most people know it. Well, I, I think it's challenging. So, I, you know, there's certain arms of the ultra-fundamentalist group that's going to think I'm a heretic and have said so. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's going to be people more who get past the threat of whether I go or whether I'm a banner waver and uh, kind of listen to what's in there about the life of Jesus and learning to live in his love and learning to touch the world in ways that help a better message get to the world. And I think they're very much engaged. So, you know, I, I don't I don't do the numbers tracking thing, so I don't I don't track how many books sell where. I, I haven't done that for a long time, but uh, I, I'm I'm thrilled by the email I get and the conversations I have when I travel around. I do think it's connecting. I do. I know there's a lot of people who still go to a Sunday morning thing, and some pastors who are who write me, who listen to the God Journey, who are part of this conversation with us. And there's a lot of people who aren't, and some of those are former pastors and former elders and former Sunday school leaders. So uh, it's a broad spectrum of people who are who are really intrigued by this discussion and not wanting to make it just a vitriolic one, but one of passion and reason and, and hope. Well, and you have mosquito hunters in different parts of the country following you too, so... <laughs> yeah, what are you going to do about that? That's always scary. <laughs> um, you know, let me. I don't. In the new book, it seemed like, and you can correct me if if this is not what your intention was. But if I, after going through the book, I sort of got this sense of sort of like a big part of it is is sort of painting the landscape for the landscape for people, um, number of the issues, and then sort of in the latter half of the book, it seemed like you. Um, spend some time talking about people walking people through that may have stepped away from institutional church and some of the things they might expect and, and um, you know, encouragement for things they might be able to um, take as encouragement moving forward. Um, but before we jump into that, um, I wonder if we could just, there's going to be some people listening um, that might think, I don't want them to check out because, you know, you talk about people leaving and we're using the language of institutional church. So maybe, you could clarify that as you answer this, but that, you know, one of the, one of the critiques people might throw at you is that, man, this is just one of those guys that thinks, well, we just got to go do it ourselves. We're leaving. We don't want to be told what to do. We're going to do it our own way kind of thing. And uh, they might throw, you know, verses from the Bible at you about not giving up meeting together. And, and just how do you usually respond to that and, or kind of help people make sense of how you understand, you know, verses like that, or sort of your, 
your uh, high viewpoint of what's going on here, this dynamic, if that's not too much for one question? There's, there's a lot in there. I could take me another yeah. hour to answer all yeah. that. But yeah. uh, I, what I mostly I mostly gauge my responses based on where people are at. You know, I'm not I'm not trying to close doors for people. I'm trying to provide on ramps, not off ramps. So okay. if, if they're ready to talk about some of the way people are viewing church, uh, we can do that. I, I get how people feel threatened. I certainly was when I was there. You'd see people. And and the research that Packard and Hope did showed that it was it was your high achievers that were leaving. It's not your, you know, people that are kind of, you know, in or out, kind of fade out the back door. These were people who were very much engaged, elders, pastors, Sunday school teachers. They're usually major contributors. And what we found out was just so, um, they felt so repressed having to try to live out their faith in this politicized system that was often more about obligation than it was about helping people truly follow Jesus. So, mm-hmm. People don't leave easily. That's what I like to tell pastors. People don't leave easily. They tried to stay. They hoped they could be a voice for reform. They hoped something would change. They, they When you have a, a lifetime worth of friendships and then you choose to walk away from that because your conscience won't let you do other than, you feel like your faith is going to die if you stay in that environment. Mm-hmm. And that's what a lot of people felt. It, it, they, they didn't want to leave. They felt like they had no choice. And so... Mm-hmm. I get that. I get because I I didn't necessarily leave. I got kicked out by a best friend co-pastor guy. So yeah. I I didn't I didn't leave it. I was thrown out and then just never found my way back in. I, I planned to when I first left, mm-hmm. but I began to meet and experience so much life outside that surprised me, and that really helped me see how that obligation based involvement, whether it's quoting a scripture about not meeting together, as is the habit of some. You're still bringing people back to obligation. You're not freeing them to listen to and follow Jesus the way he's calling them to live in him. Mm. And uh, I think that's what causes the disconnect. And if we can get people to see that, uh, and I think we can have a better conversation. And if people are, I mean, I, we had someone on our home last weekend who's part of a, a group up in uh, up in Canada that meets regularly, that has a name, that is a, what, be a, somewhat of a traditional church except they're real grace-based, and they're not doing the conformity thing. They're really trying to live outside of that and encouraging people to. And I applaud people who are trying to do this differently, even if they're doing it in a more traditional setting. Hmm. Hmm. Well, you know, let's, if you don't mind, if, can we talk about the obligation thing for a minute? Because um, it's, a, it's just one word, but it feels like there's so much of, of that, that idea of obligation within the church um, that is sort of assumed or like that it has to be that way. Like when I think of so many, you know, some of these millions of people we're talking about, like you said, have been inside a, and I say local church, I'll use a, the institutional church language. Um, they've, you know, served in a local church and volunteered or their family just went for a long time. Um, for some people, you know, the obligation is just part of it. They don't even recognize that word. So, do you think you could unpack that for me a little bit, just in a way the average person might be able to understand, like the your critique of this idea of obligation and why that's a problem? Yeah, I think institutions by nature tend to be conformity based. Whether you're uh, building a business or you know having a church, you've got you got to have a certain set of doctrines, certain set of rituals, certain set of expectations, and then people who are members in good standing, using that language, are people who prescribe to those 
expectations and theologies and doctrines. And it gets people, I think, un, un, and it's all, it can all be well-intentioned. It's like we've, we've got 2,000 years of Christian history. We, we kind of know what the big theology important things are. We kind of know what some of the practices are that may help you grow in Christ. So instead of teaching you how to follow Jesus, we'll just get you to follow these things. We'll get you to come to service regularly, read your Bible, pray, get, you know, give tithes and offerings. And none of that's bad. None of that's mm. wrong, except that when I'm doing that as a substitute for a relationship with Christ, instead of actually having one, mm. and I think for some reason over our Christian history, we, we've slid into it's easier to make people do what we think they should do or encourage them to rather than to help them discover how Jesus is living in them and taking shape in them and how to follow the voice of the shepherd instead of conforming to a set of prescribed expectations. I think it's exactly what Galatia shifted to. This happens so early in Christianity that Paul's having to write the church at Galatia saying, why have you given up this believing what you hear by the Spirit living in you to following rules other people have set up for you? And it's, it wasn't just about the Mosaic law. It was about trading relationship for performance and expectations. That's that obligation word. And so I would say, you know, if you use the word law, people say, we don't do the law, it's a mosaic law. We, we eat bacon, we do this, we do that. <laughs> and, and we don't see that it's just, even if it's New Testament principles, mm -hmm. it's still substituting the fresh breath of the Spirit for Wayne's conformity to someone else's expectations of me. And it's not that that can't have good outcomes and that it gets you away from bad things and you're doing good things, but you've missed the best part of the gospel, which is Christ living in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory and how you discover him. So I want to get people back on that page. Let's not do this conformity base. Let's, tr let's equip people to have the relationship with God that Jesus died on the cross to give us. And I think that gets, uh, unfortunately left on the sidelines when people just go to expectations and we've already figured out what you need to believe and what you need to do. Mm. Well, and like you said, it's easy to see how there there really does seem to be a um, there's both kinds, but there seems to be a, a lot of uh, folks that are in church leadership around the country that are really um, have well-intended hearts, especially when they first get in um, and they're working so hard and, you know, talking so much about wanting to help so many people. Um, and then it seems like the longer you see them working in that church, you see them getting more and more tired and sort of, you know, they've run that, I don't know, they have to, at some point they start to feel the weight of the machine that they have to, to keep going. Um, yeah. And there's a big part, there's a big wing that doesn't even believe Jesus wants to speak to the individual believer. I mean, we saw some of that this week on The View with uh, the vice presidents from your neck of the woods oh, yeah. uh, saying, you know, he claims to hear from Jesus, and that makes him a dangerous, insane person. And I, I know a lot of Christians, quote unquote, that would also agree with that, that. Jesus doesn't speak to us today. We have the Bible, and that's all we need. And so we take the Bible and create the expectations and get people to perform. Instead of, no, God really does speak to people. And, he, it, you know, it's not that weird stuff where you hear voices and you're out murdering your neighbor because yeah. Jesus told you to. It's just Jesus nudging you into his reality where it becomes a, a voice and a life to follow rather than a religion to practice. Hmm. And uh, there's not even there, – there's quite a few church people that don't believe God speaks to us today. That's just, You know, people who believe that are deluded and, you know, following weird stuff in their heads. And, you know, there's enough evidence of that, too, of people who claim to follow Jesus who do really stupid or selfish things. So yeah. it, that's why it's such a mess, I think. 
Yeah. And, you know, actually, when I heard um, those comments from Joy, I thought, you know, one of the things it, it, it brings home how important this conversation is we're having today for me, because the language that we use with this for a lot of people, it, it doesn't make sense or we we attach extra baggage to what we think they mean. Um, you know, even that, like, because when I heard Joy's comments from a Christian perspective, it seems like what most people are talking about, you know, like what you're constantly mentally ill because this idea that they have an actual relationship with Jesus. And then from a secular viewpoint, you know, you think, well, in a lot of the mental institutions, that is one of the more common, you know, thing for people that are struggling to maintain a grip on reality. There's a lot of times religious experiences of being, you know, someone talking to you. So it's like you really do have to spend a few minutes like unpacking it for people, what you mean by things, you know. Um, yep. Help me with this, because when you start to talk about you talked about this in the past, maybe with us as well. Um but you talk a lot in your work about this idea of God's spirit in us, nudging us towards things um, and learning to listen to him. And that seems for a lot of people, um, that just seems like a big jump. You know, for some people say, it's crazy. I don't hear voices. But then you say, no, you've got the spirit of God in you. You can listen to this. And it seems like such an impossible journey to step into. And you've, you've touched on it a little bit, but would you just take a second and, help somebody say, Hey, okay, if I believe you that, that God is available and his spirit is available to me, what, what would that look like for me moving forward? You know? Yeah. I grew up in a tradition that didn't believe God spoke to us. We had the Bible, we had teachers to interpret the Bible for us. And that's pretty much all we needed. When I was pretty young though, middle school age, whatever, we, we began to come up on this idea that Jesus really did die to have a relationship with us. My sheep know my voice and they'll follow me and a stranger they will not follow. And there's lots of other places where God will write his words on our heart, not words of and tablets of stone. And there, there really is throughout the New Testament, this invitation to an engagement with God that isn't a matter of sitting in your room and trying to hear voices and following voices. It's the awareness that God's taken up residence in me. And then there's an ability to discern, and some may call it, it may look like intuition, it may look like, you know, an idea that's running around my head, and, I, and I've got to discern, is that my idea, God's idea, is that something the devil's throwing at me? And that, that's all stuff we get to learn. We get to learn how to recognize those nudges, those thoughts, that overwhelming compassion. Sometimes it's just that. It's just you see a situation or a person, and your heart just breaks for them. And you, you see other people in even more desperate needs, and you don't respond the same way. I tend to see that as the Holy Spirit at work in us, and he's teaching us how to be nudged into a different reality, not just use our five external temporal world senses, but also learning to sense spiritually where, where God might be, what, what he's challenging me with, what he might asking me to do. What, and I, it, it does take some time to help people understand how to do that. And people tend to make mistakes doing that, oftentimes putting God's name to something they really, really want and may manipulate their friends or spouse or whatever to try and do it. And so it gives God, listening to God, a bad name. But when you give people the chance to learn and be helped in that process, what you find is people who become more tender, more loving, more humble. The person who claims, you know, thus saith, Lord, I've heard from God, you shut up and get out of my way. <laughs> Those are people that genuinely aren't listening to God. I, I think that when we listen to God's ways of doing things, it makes us more tender and more gentle, not more arrogant and more brash. Hmm. And that's one of the ways I discern, uh, you know, when I'm hearing him, when others around me claim to hear him, 
you know, what, what's it doing inside? Is this making me more more Jesus-like, or is it making me more arrogant and more independent and more difficult to be around? And those are good indicators. But I, I do think this is something we have to learn, and it does take some time. Uh, was Hebrews say through practice, our senses are trained to discern what's good and what's evil. Um, so learning to follow God like that and learning to let his law, his ways emerge from us by the Holy Spirit, either making me restless about something that's hurtful to me or granting me peace and rest in situations that he is inviting me into, even if they're very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, those are ways we kind of learn to follow. And I, I realize that's challenging to people. People yeah. have not heard that, don't want – I get it. I get how scary that is. But to me, it's the best part of the new covenant. If we miss that, then we're just left to someone else's interpretations of Scripture. And we've all been wrong about that. We've all been wrong in so many of our interpretations and sometimes wrong about the things we think God's saying to us. Yeah. And the joy is we get both. We get kind of scripture to set the guidelines. So if we're claiming some really weird stuff, we can go, okay, that's probably not God because scripture is pretty clear that's out of bounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, but scripture can't give us the best way to respond to every situation. It can't tell us whether I should take my elderly parents into my home or whether I should help them do something. Those are things we need to really discern. What, what's God doing in this situation? How is he leading me? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we got to help people learn to do that because that's just a much better way to live. Well, and I, that, I appreciate that. And that, that sort of takes me to two different lines of questioning. But the first is, you know, you actually later in the book talked about this idea of um, there becomes issues when um, when truth becomes more important than love, um, which came up to me as you're talking, because, you know, it seems like people want this sense of certainty. And so you start talking about listening to God's spirit, nudging you towards something and it seems like people are more just like, you know what? No, I just tell me what the answer is. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. Um, and I, but can you talk to me a little bit about what the problems, what problems kind of come up when our desire to just have a, this fixed truth trumps love in people's lives? Well, I, I, as Paul said in Corinthians, you know, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And to me, the, the, just the knowledge route where I'm looking at Scripture, I'm, I'm trying to make determinations, and I'm balancing th- – and I always get that question all the time – balancing this Scripture against this Scripture. I had this question in, in Kenya one time. You know, Jesus over here tells his guys to take swords, and then over here as he's going to Pilate, he tells them not to take swords. So should we take swords or not take swords? And that's <laughs> that that's that guy that's looking for a principle out of Scripture, and you're going to find Scriptures like that, well – there's no scriptural answer to that. What what the, the answer to that is, it seems to me, do what Jesus says. So when he leads you to take a sword, take a sword. When he leads you not to, not to. So I think scripture even shows us that following him is a bit more than I'll just create all the rules I need from drawing principles from scripture. And I have to step back and say, no, I actually need insight. I need wisdom from God. And because God doesn't speak to us, you know, out of voices in the room in the dead of night, we kind of begin to recognize realities that are different and we could be right, we could be wrong. This is where fellowship to me and reading scripture and things are so incredibly valuable. If I think God's leading me to something that seems a bit odd, I'm going to share it with people. And I'm generally going to share it with people who are most likely not to think it's God. Mm-hmm. Because if they do, then I go, well, maybe this really is something God's leading me to do. And so that's where the fellowship becomes so valuable and, you know, searching the scriptures become valuable, not for proof text, just for what I'm sensing here. Is this consistent with the nature of God or is this more consistent with what Wayne does for his own selfish self at times? Hmm. 
And that'll help us. Yeah. And, you know, you talked about fellowship, you know, that need for fellowship at one point, and um, and that speaks to this issue of community and when and when people, if they do step away from, a, from an institutional church um, but not their faith um, – you know, I somewhere in your book, and I'm probably going to mess this line up, but you said some version of it's. There's a difference between um, being in community and having community. Um, like it's not just because you can actually be in the local church and not actually be connected with people. Um, yeah, I yeah. Mean, is that that came off a question I had? Somebody said, "Do you have a community where you live?" And I'm going, you know, a community says, "Do I have a formal group that these are my brothers and sisters, and I have a special relationship with them?" And I, I, I balk at the question because I don't have a regular group that meets once a week or meets once a month or anything like that. I do have community. If we take the A out, I have scores of people that I walk close enough to that they look into my life and I look into theirs. And we have the honesty and openness to share what God's showing to us and loving each other and praying each other through needs and caring for each other. I have community that surrounds my life in so many ways, but if you're trying, if people are looking for a group to do that, mm-hmm. that's what's tough to find for me. And I'm not opposed to that. If I had a group God told me to connect with and do it regularly, we would, we would do that. And even some of the friends we have out here, we ask periodically, "You guys want to make this more regular?" And everybody's going, "No, man, there's just no way. This is, this is, this is all I need. It's working well without that. And if we do that, then we're going to have to." do a lot of other things to maintain that and keep it working. So I'm, I'm not opposed to it. I think it can be powerful, but I don't think it's necessary either. Uh, you're part of that harlot of Babylon community out there. I, I know what's going on. You know, yeah, that's what people say, <laughs> but what, what are you going to do? <laughs> um, you know, let's talk about loneliness for a second. We talk about people leaving. Um, you know, we talk about community. Um, it's going to be lonely for some people um, just by the, by the sheer switch up of people whose lives, um, particularly for people whose lives revolve the serious and people who are seriously invested in a institutional church. You know, they're volunteering. They're at church every Sunday. They're volunteering in the nursery. They've doing the food pantry. They're doing it all. Um, they step away and you talked a lot about them, the loneliness they might experience. And, um, I wonder for you, I mean, I know you got the, the uninvited boot or something, but, um, did you have to walk through that too, or were you were you able to avoid that? We, we were able to avoid. It. I mean, there were there were a number of people that we had we had good friends in that thing. So when I got booted, other people were like, "Hold it, what's going on here?" And some of them left too. And so we had friends around us that we had known from before. Some of those have been elders in that group. Uh, we've had times where we've moved to a completely new city where we didn't know anybody, mm-hmm. and so there, we've had times where we're going, "Okay, this is going to be interesting. We don't have any backstop here." Uh, we're going to see how God brings people into our lives, but we find he does that exceptionally well, even when you just don't know anybody. If you just look to not, not try to, what most people do is I got to find me another group and then I'm lonely because I don't have a group. And, and to realize if you were involved in a local institution, Mm -hmm. you probably gave two, three, maybe even four nights a week between worship practice and elders meetings and, you know, home groups and Sunday morning and set up. And I mean, you gave a significant number of hours to do things that may have been relational, but they may not have been. They may have just filled time where it gave you the illusion of community. But if you really had a need, nobody really knew you. Nobody 
you know, would ask you what, how you're doing and, and mean it other than the perfunctory, hey, Ann, how you doing? Yeah. And I, I think people who come out and get really lonely realize they, they were also lonely there. They, they, yeah. they didn't have the connections there that were nurturing. Yeah. And does it take some time, particularly if you're introverted and you're not out, you know, looking to love people and whatever? I, there are ways to, to maybe find a group that you can hang out with and maybe have some relationships. But I, I think the better way is what 1 Corinthians 12 says, the Holy Spirit will set you in the family as God desires. And that to me, just a great problem. Not my job to find the people to get with. It's not my job to find a group to connect to. It's his job. What I need to do is be open and responsive to him. So if I'm just sitting on my couch every day, all day, I'm not going to meet anybody and nothing is going to happen. But if I'm out in the world when I'm shopping, when I'm uh, you know, working, when I'm doing whatever, and just loving the people God puts in front of me, in time you'll have friends. And in time, some of those friends will be on a similar journey as yours. And you'll have those kinds of conversations with them that are so incredibly wonderful. Mm. Well, and I know when people, some people step away, um, you know, it's like they carry the judgment of the people they left behind with them sometimes. And, um, you know, I wonder, there's there's something I heard you and Brad talk about once, which isn't necessarily right in the book, but um, I don't know if you asked Brad or, the, or vice versa, but it, you guys asked this question is, why do you think that people keep going back to some of these churches where... Um, you know, people are getting beat up. I mean, there's so many people that have walked away from the institution, but for some reason, a lot of people still keep showing up. There's something about this, like being told that they're, you know, everything they do bad and getting them repent and, um, you know, come forward every, every week. There's something about that, that they keep coming for. And I wonder, I can't remember what the answer was and I couldn't find the episode. So I was wondering if you could remind <laughs> me of that. Yeah, I, I think we're just talking about what, and when we're talking about church in general or tr- traditional church in general, we were talking about really legalistic. You get your, you know, beat up by the pastor every Sunday, how bad you are, and there's repentance, and there's a catharticness to I've had a bad week, I've ignored God, done some things, I go in and get whooped up on Sunday, and there's a, a, a very human kind of catharsis that walks away from that thing like, wow, I got, I got whooped for that, so now I'm going to try and do better. Mm-hmm. And it failed. I just, I just think there's some kind of comfort people get from that, but they're still missing what it is to really know God and follow him. One of my favorite chapters in Beyond Sunday is I'm looking for 35 million people. Those are the people that yeah. left, abandoned their faith when they abandoned the, the church they were a part of. And to me, I, I don't know of anything sadder than someone who's been part of an institutional church for decades and yet in that engagement, never came to know God as a reality. So when they walk away, there's no God that's bigger than the failures of the group for them and how that group may have failed them or beat them up with legalistic kinds of expectations. And that's where my heart hurts. I don't know how many of those listen to this podcast or mine, but if if you somehow hear this and you got disillusioned and you walked away thinking God wasn't real because the congregation you went to was hurtful— Think again, man, there's lots of things. There is a father in the universe who loves you more than anyone else ever has or ever will. He wants to connect with you. And just ask him, ask him, God, if you're real, show me. Those are the people I really want to talk to because it's sad to me that there are religious institutions in some places have so disfigured the God of the Bible that people never got to know him as an enduring presence. Mm. They only got to know the rules and the regulations and the abuse. Yeah. And thus they've rejected him. And uh, that hurts me. Yeah. Hey, you know, along with that, um, you know, when you talk about people coming out from under obligation and 
um, the different ways that happens. Um, there's this sense of when you, you move into this like deeper relational life with, with God, um, that there's a greater sense of freedom. Um, but people seem to be, I guess I just ask you, why do you think people are so afraid of freedom when it comes to their, their life and God? Well, there could be a lot of reasons. I think one of them would be we've been taught not to trust our heart, that our heart's desperately wicked. And so when you get to freedom, and they've seen people in the name of freedom do incredibly horrible things. You know, I'm I'm free now in Christ to divorce my wife. I'm free to, you know, go cheat my, you know, go cheat somebody in business and steal something that's not mine. I think people have seen the abuses of freedom so much. And what they don't realize is the real freedom that Scripture talks about is not the freedom to do whatever we want. It's the freedom from the tyranny of me. Mm-hmm. It's the freedom from Wayne's best ideals for himself which turn out to be destructive, but they don't look it on the surface. Mm. And so freedom is the freedom from the, the flesh, the freedom from our appetites and things that are deceptive and destructive. But if people don't see that, I think they see how freedom is abused and then they, uh, they don't know what to do with it. And they're afraid. It's kind of like kids when they take all the fences away from the playground, yeah. they'll hover in the middle of the playground because they're <laughs> safe. But if, if you've got fences up, they'll go to the walls because they feel safe and protected. Mm-hmm. A- and part of that is because we haven't helped people feel safe and protected because Christ is in them. Mm-hmm. They're safe and protected because they've got the right structure or rules around them. And that would, to me, point out one of the fatal flaws of what Christianity as a religion has done. It's put more trust in our ability to tell you what to do than the Holy Spirit living in you to lead you to what's life-giving and transforming for you. Yeah, we've uh, we've had a uh, – Pete Enns was on one time. His his line is, you know, that we've put our faith in our beliefs and not Jesus. Um, yeah. You know, when we talk about people um, moving into freedom, moving into this, like, dynamic – listening to God's spirit, nudging them towards freedom in life and really kind of a better life, I'd say, because it's more, there's actually, when you hear people talk about this adventure that is the Christian life, um, that really only makes sense in the context of where there's these unexpected things happening, unexpected, um, encounters and, you know, kind of nudges like you described in your heart. But, um, as people step into that, they're not familiar with it necessarily because they haven't seen it lived out for a lot of us. Haven't, um, I've heard you, it, the the feeling I get is like this sense of nervousness. Like, how am I, I don't want to screw it up. I, I want God to be happy with me. Um, so I'm like, just tell me all the things. I'll learn them all, and then I'll jump out and try this. But I, I don't remember where I heard you share it, whether it was a newsletter or a podcast. I heard you share a story um, of your wife, Sarah, and I hope she's recovering um, from from her health stuff. But um, you shared yep. a story that Sarah shared about your grandkids and she has a garden, and I just thought it was the most profound idea and imagery of what growing up and learning what it means to be with God. Yeah, I'll give you a more uh, a fresher one because okay. uh, it's the same. It gets to the same point. It involves the same garden. My wife has this beautiful garden out back of our house, and it's not what anybody's thinking. If I showed you a picture, people go, "What? This is in your backyard?" It's and it's flowers. She paints with flowers. It's artistic. It's beautiful, and. Uh, we had a, we got a new pup a couple years ago because our other dog died, mm. and we got a new puppy. And sh- we were out there. I'd been traveling and got home, and I'd been home a couple of days. And I was working in my study. And one of the neat things of my study is it overlooks the garden. So when Sarah's nice. out there, I get to see her. And after a couple of hours of getting some stuff done, I thought, you know, I'm just go down and see Sarah for a minute and talk. So we went down there. And as I walked down there, there's one section of the garden 
that's close to where I'm walking in it. Sarah's on the far side of it, and there's the new puppy, and she's dug a fairly significant hole in the garden. Oh, no. Um, yeah, and Sarah's flowers, and I'm like, oh, oh, the new pup's going to be in trouble here. <laughs> and so I yelled at Sarah. I said, uh, sweetheart, you know what's going on over here? She says, what do you mean, with Zoe? And I said, yeah, it was Zoe. She said, yeah, I know what she's doing. I said, really? I said, yeah, she's digging a hole. I said, you know how big this hole is? And she said, well, I haven't seen it lately. I said, no, it's big enough to bury a small child in it. And she just kept working. And so I'm finally walking over to her just going, what's going on? And she said, you know what? When I come out in this garden, I want that dog to come with me. And if I'm going to make a bunch of rules right now, she's not coming with me. She's going to learn to hate the garden. If I go over there and, you know, get angry at her and tell her not to dig, and then she's going to learn to just stay away from the garden. This year, I'm going to let her do whatever she wants because I want her to enjoy me in the garden. Mm. Next year, I'm going to teach her how to be in the garden. Mm. But, and I don't think it's the same point that you were wanting to raise, Jeff. But to me, that's what we haven't given people. Yeah. expectations don't give people the chance to enjoy God. They start loading the rules on us mm -hmm. that we've got to do to keep God happy. Instead of, if we learn to enjoy God, we'll keep the rules. That's what Jesus said when he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. If we get the loving, yeah. the keeping takes care of itself. And that dog now goes out in the garden. Every time Sarah goes to the garden, or anybody else for that matter, she's running out to the garden. She likes being in the garden with people, mm. and she hasn't dug a hole in years. We've had her two <laughs> years now. She dug that one hole. She actually never dug another hole again. Uh, but she wasn't disciplined out of it. She just, I guess, somehow figured out that people like this place and I'm not going to destroy it. And mm. I, I think that's a beautiful picture of what the new covenant is. God, let me win you into a relationship. And that day you'll realize I'm in you, you're in me. And then we'll live differently because we're endeared to God, not because we're terrified of him. Mm. Now, that, that's, that's close enough to what I was thinking of um, because, you know, it does seem to parallel all this other stuff we're talking about when it comes to, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, even in people's families, when it comes, it makes sense to us when a little, little tiny toddler is making mistakes. We're not, you know, you know, loving parents generally are not all worked up over it or, or we'd think of them sort of as not necessarily <laughs> parents of the year when they freak out on their kids, you know, not that we, <laughs> we haven't done it in moments of stress, but Yep. You know, when we're, when we're not worked up, when we're in a place of peace and we see our kid do something, um, there's really no need to, to freak out on them, you know? And, um, but you do see some of the church stuff sometimes like this sense of obligation. It's just all about getting people to do the stuff just right, um, to achieve. And the kids left to believe, you know, I have to do the stuff just right in order to win, to win the affection of the family members or the, or the parents, you know, and, and it seems like that translates into people's journey with God so often that they're trying to, to earn it. So the idea of, of God, um, we'll let Sarah, you know, be that picture for us of just being yeah. like, come on along, you know, if you dig a hole, great. Um, you know, you'll like, you'll, you'll learn to understand what I'm up to here and then you'll just kind of mature into it. Right. And that just takes time. I mean, you don't do that yeah. overnight. I take it does. And you really, what you want to do is win love first before you start talking change, yeah. because otherwise we're just going to use love as a weapon. And like you say, what people are going to confuse is God loves me when I'm good and when I get it all right. And yet God rejects me when I struggle and when I, you know, whatever. And what God wants us to know, we have the freedom to struggle. This is a process of learning faith, learning trust, learning growth, but it happens when we're enjoying him. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen when we're afraid of him. Mm -hmm. Expectations, obligation always puts us on that track of, I've got to do what God wants to be loved by him. 
instead of, no, I'm already loved, even when I'm a mess. Mm -hmm. But that loving will change me. It's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to worldly desires and selfish appetites. And it's not fear that does. It's grace that does. And when I walked out of the garden that day from Sarah, I went, oh, my gosh, there's not a better picture to me of godliness than what Sarah was given that puppy. And the proof has been that that's a full-sized dog, now a 90-pound dog, and she could wreak <laughs> havoc on the garden now, and she's not. She mm. never does. But she goes out there every time Sarah's out there. Yeah, and you know, the one other word that um, that often goes with this kind of conversation is that issue of shame, you know, and that people, it seems like that's how people, why they avoid God sometimes, too, is there's so much shame associated with their own their own life and um, that they feel like is coming from God. So this idea of a God that's not shaming them is just really challenging for people to to get their head around, I think. It is. And when it talks about coming to him like a child, I mean, scriptures we all know so well. We, we always, I think, with God act like we're adults that should know better instead of we're children who are learning to live. And so we're going to make the mistakes that children make. And God's okay with that. I'm a, I'm a grandpa now, and my grandkids, they're not, they're not perfect creatures at all. But I have much more patience now with them than I did when I was a parent. Because a parent, I felt responsible to make them better citizens. And now I guess to love them, and I'm, I'm not going to let them stay in a dark place. I'm going to help them move away from a tantrum or whatever they're doing at the moment. Mm. But I'm going to do it in a very different way, and I'm going to let endearment be transformative instead of fear. Yeah, and that's so powerful. And we, I think, I think religion has missed that. We, it's just a shorter cut to go. You know, God's really disappointed in you, and you need to yeah. try harder. And it's just a, that's a shortcut, but it's a shortcut to disaster. It's not a shortcut to life. Yeah, there, there is that issue of do you trust God's heart for you? You know, um, you know, um, Wayne. We ask on the show all the time what the questions are that I wish more people were asking. Um, I've asked you in the past. You've got a new book coming out. Is there? Is there any new questions right now that you that you wish more people were asking? Oh my gosh, I I get asked <laughs> questions all the time. But <laughs> should you start charging membership for the Harlots of Babylon Club? You know? you know, I think the one question it would do it would serve us well to ask all the time: Does God want to be more real to me than He is? Yeah, and I think we're afraid of that question. Uh, to me. It's the adventure of a lifetime. It's being a, you know, we get to 80s and 90s. I I met a 90-year-old one time that just said, you know what, I think I'm about this deep. And he pinches his index finger and his thumb about a quarter of an inch apart. I think I'm about this deep in discerning and knowing God's love. And that just, there's something about that just triggered my heart about how we always have to pretend we know more than we do, that we're further down the road than we are. Yeah. And if we had that youthful joy of discovery saying, okay, I just, I know so little about God, and yet he's faithful to keep navigating me on a journey that draws me closer to him. And so if people ask, one regret I had as a pastor, I don't think anybody ever made an appointment with me, just say, Wayne, could you help me know God better? Mm. I would I, I got problems. I got, you know, I'm upset at, you know, Alice brought her sick child to the nursery on Sunday and <laughs> Yeah, I got all that. I didn't get anybody that just walked in and said, I, I want to know God better. Hmm. And if that's the question we're asking, that's, you know, that that prayer we joke about all the time, you know, whatever it takes, God, I want to know you as you really are. That's a that's hmm. a great prayer to pray, but it seems to unleash a whole lot of uh, stuff that can happen that finally brings us to the end of ourself. I don't think God orchestrates that, but yeah. I do think our willingness allows him to walk further with us down roads that we would tend to run from. If uh, we weren't opening the door so wide to him, yeah, and that's a question that people in the church or out of the church can be asking, right? Whether they're Christian yeah. or not, like, um, you know, God, 
Are you re- like, I, what is that question you asked? I like that one in the book somewhere. You say, you wish people would just ask, especially those like 34, 35 men that walked away from their faith. You said, if there was one prayer or question you could ask God, it would just be what, would you show yourself to me? Is that the. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a great prayer to get started. If God, if you are real, if you are more real, if you, if you love me and, and I don't know that I'm loved, would you show that to me? God, show me yourself as you really are. Those are great prayers, and yeah. we so rarely pray those when we think we've got all our doctrinal ducks in a row yeah. that we, we don't even think we need that. And I, I'm praying it almost every day. God, what is it about you I don't know? I, I ask that to people I travel around with. I'll, I'll meet an older brother or sister down the road a bit, and I'll say, well, tell me, what is, what is it that you wish I knew about God? Yeah. And they'll say, what are you talking about? And I say, well, I read people's books, and I'll think, man, I wish they knew this about God. So when you read my books, what do you wish I knew about God that I don't seem to know yet? Mm-hmm. And then people will share some interesting things. Yeah. And I'll go, wow, that's that's really helpful, because we all don't know where we're blind. We, we know what we know. We don't know what we don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the great blessings of this manifold wisdom of God is available through the church and I mean that as a great number of people, not an institution down the road. Yeah. The manifold wisdom of God is available to the church. If I'm not having those conversations with Jesus and relying on my own revelation of him, that revelation is going to be a very narrow, slender cut of all that he is. Hmm. And when I add other people's narrow cuts to that, it grows. My perception of him grows and my wonder in him grows. Hmm. Well, I I know I liked the question for folks that, you know, may not feel like they have a relationship with God. But then I thought, you know, there's a lot of people sitting sort of like, you know, going through the motions in churches around our country, too, that probably could stand to ask that question for God to to reveal himself to them as well. So um, last quote I'll give for you. I don't know. I think you said in the book somewhere, but you said to leave people that are like sort of, man, what am I going to do with all this? Wayne Jacobson wrote, truth will often disturb us before it sets us free. So if, if anybody's listening, they're like, I don't know. I'm a little nervous about this. Just just let it simmer for a minute, right? Yeah, yeah give it time. Don't yeah. be so defensive because that's going to keep us trapped in what we already are lost in. Yeah. The, the openness to say, and I've said this oftentimes, you know, the truth will set you free, but it will mess with you first. If yeah. if I already knew it was true and I, and I you know, then I, I would love it. But when I don't know something is true, truth is often very challenging. It's going to make me walk in places that seems uncomfortable to me, but doing so opens up such a wider world of an adventure with God that makes life worth living. Yeah, so good. Yeah. Wayne, love you, man. Thanks for coming on. And um, You're welcome, Jeff. It's great to be with you again. Yeah, and people, like I said, can go over to lifestream.org or thegodjourney.com or is Beyond Sundays just on Livestream? Is that the place or is it at his own website or... Yeah, it's on Amazon. There's ebooks out. Most of the ebook distributors have it, but it's self-published, so it's not going to be in bookstores, places like that. But but Amazon and ebooks everywhere. And then if you want the hard copy, you can get it from us or Amazon. Okay. Well, uh, love it. Hope people get it, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right, Jeff. Thanks. All right. Cheers. <laughs>